We're looking at the book of Proverbs. Uh, well, we're looking at wisdom, really. The, the Proverbs is a book about wisdom. If, if we spent the time to go through Proverbs, all 31 chapters, I don't know that we would get it done in our lifetime, to be honest, honest with you. Um, we've, I have camped on one verse in Proverbs chapter 14, and it looks like after today I might finish it uh, next week. And that'll be three, works, three weeks on one uh, verse, which tells you something. It is, uh, that, that book is pregnant with uh, wisdom waiting to be mined and uh, put in play by you. And we need to go to the Bible for our wisdom. We need to dig in and mine. Uh, God calls us to search for wisdom. Um, it's not something you just have. Contrary to popular belief and what we see in the culture where everybody is a guru, it seems like everybody is wise in their own eyes. Everybody has something to sell you, to give you, and it's going to change your life. Um, but where that wisdom comes from is, uh, it's debatable where it comes from, and, it's, and you can be skeptical at the origins of the wisdom that comes to us anywhere other than from God. There's usually something self-motivated in it when it doesn't come from him. Um, but we uh, are called to find it, to search for it. Uh, Proverbs chapter 8 says, I love those who love me. This is wisdom speaking. I love those who love me and those who seek me diligently find me. Uh, Proverbs chapter 2, if you seek it like silver and search for it as for hidden treasures, then you will understand the fear of the Lord, and find the knowledge of God, right? If you seek it, if you look for it, if you diligently search for it. James uh, in the New Testament says, if any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God, right? Same sentiment. If you lack wisdom, which is, you know, almost a rhetorical question. If you lack wisdom, go to God. Blessed are those who find wisdom. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find, Jesus says. We have to go after it. It's not something you just have. To be wise is not to have wisdom. Biblical, to be wise in the biblical context is to find wisdom and put it into play. That's what it is to be wise. It's, it, it isn't wise to know something, to have something. It is wisdom to know that it doesn't come from within you. It comes from God to go and to find it. And when you do find it, you do something about it. In fact, the Bible calls uh, the opposite of that foolishness. Both the fool and the wise have uncovered wisdom. They've, they have found it. It has found them. But the wise person, the definition of wise is, they put it in play. They do something. They apply it to their life. The fool sees wisdom, hears guidance, is given instruction, but doesn't do anything with it. That's the difference. The fool is not unwise in the sense that he doesn't have it, hasn't seen it, hasn't been told it. The fool is the one who doesn't put it in play. Jesus said this, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Not everyone who says Jesus is Lord will join me in heaven. Not everyone who has wisdom is wise. Jesus says, the one who does the will of the Father is the one who is in heaven. The one who sets aside their own agenda for God's agenda. 
The one that sets aside their own wisdom for God's wisdom is the one that finds eternal life. So we are called again and again and again to seek it, find it, and do it. It falls right in line with what we have traditionally called around Vista, the, the discipleship flywheel. The thing that is at the center of our learning and our discipleship and our growing in Christ is this little process that says, I hear from God, I listen to him, I hear from him, I find wisdom, and I do something about it. I put it in play, and I help somebody else hear from God and do something with it. This is at the center of our lives as Christians to find wisdom and to put it into play, to hear from God and to do. To not be just hearers of the word, but doers. To not be just listeners of guidance and wisdom and instruction from God, but doers of it. We've been building a solid foundation for the last couple of weeks. I highly encourage you to listen uh, to what's already been covered. Um, uh, one of our elders, Eric, kicked us off, uh, and it was beautifully done. I have called back to his message as I've prepared the rest of the messages that I'm responsible for. Adam's coming next week, and then I think I'm closing it the week later, unless maybe Adam is. I don't sure. I can't remember. God's gift of wisdom, this is great news, right? It's been with us before time, really, before, at least before the creation, at least before the world. If you look at Proverbs 8, you see that wisdom was there and was the roadmap for creation. Wisdom came from God, and through wisdom, the world was ordered. It's a critical part of our, our path. Uh, we need to keep doing, as I've been saying, to learn to trust, as Proverbs 3 tells us, in the Lord and not in our own minds, to not be wise in our own eyes, which is hugely important for the society we live in today. This cuts straight through to the meat of the situation with regard to each one of us in, in this world where increasingly within our culture, there are fewer and fewer absolutes being held to. More and more, if you feel it, it must be true. All sorts of other flimsy mediums of supposed knowledge which, in fact, are just a bunch of people holding to the idea that they are wise. And they are wise in their own eyes, but not necessarily in the eyes of God. And we got to keep trusting Jesus, right? It is critical to the process for us with regard to wisdom. God himself said, this is my son whom I love. Listen to him. Listen to him. Paul says, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. We enjoy something in our lives that, that uh, history uh, has not always enjoyed. We have the Son of God who enlightens, interprets, and demonstrates wisdom for us. We don't have to simply read the Word of God. We have the Word himself to help us understand it. We look at Scripture, we learn Scripture through the eyes and the life and the teaching of Jesus, and we know it and wisdom better because of him. As you get to know Jesus, you get to know the word better, you get to understand wisdom better, you get to understand God better, and you can apply it to your life better. It's a beautiful situation. We need to keep moving down this pike. And here we are. Proverbs 14, which I began to introduce to you last week. Everyone can relate to this. The, uh, the, 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 the beauty 
and the significance and the frustration of the work God calls all of humanity to. Now, all of you are working in some form or fashion. You have work to do, and it is beautiful, and it is significant, and it is oftentimes frustrated. It is frustrating to do the work that we are called to do. Proverbs 14.4 says, where there are no oxen, the manger is empty, which doesn't mean where there are no oxen, there are no oxen. That's, that's silliness. What's this, what's this verse saying? Where there are no oxen, the manger is clean, pure, undefiled, if you will. Where there are no oxen, the barn is fun to go into. Where there are oxen, the barn is not fun to go into. If you've ever been responsible for order and cleanliness in a particular space, you can relate to this wisdom. People and animals are seldom helpful to the person who's trying to keep order and cleanliness. Can you relate to that? Every facility manager of every building everywhere, if he could hang a we're closed sign on the door, he would, she would. Don't come in here and mess up everything that I've been trying to do. It doesn't matter what you're in charge of. It can, be, uh, it can be a park. It could be a stadium. It could be a church. It could be a business. If you're in charge of keeping clean, it would be better if no one ever came. Where there are, where there are no oxen, the manger is empty. In fact, if you're responsible for ordering things and keeping them neat and clean, all of nature is working against you. Everyone is working against you. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly the way it feels. Amen. The second law of thermodynamics, or at least one corollary of it, literally is that this world we live in is going from a state of order to disorder. Without work, without effort, without resistance, everything is going from order to disorder. I remember doing an experiment. This is a very simple experiment. When I was in the midst of a thermodynamics class, you just grab a handful of whatever. It can be paper clips. It could be popcorn. It could be jelly beans. It could be marbles, whatever. And if you lay them out, you rest them out, you pour them out onto a flat surface, what is not going to happen is that the paper clips are going to line themselves up side by side across that table. They're not going to order themselves by size. The popcorn is not going to group itself by popped and unpopped kernels. It's not going to happen. It's going to be in disarray. But if you had something like a water wheel, a, a, a wheel with paddles on it, and you take whatever's in your hands and you, and you let it go along the line of that water wheel, you could turn that water wheel, and that turning water wheel could turn into eventually some kind of energy. The world's going from order to disorder, but if we work, if we engage, we can be a part of what the upshot of this proverb says. But the strength of an ox, but from the strength of an ox come abundant harvests, right? Life is messy. This verse is saying quite simply, life is messy. Work by uh, association is messy, but there is a way that we can be productive. There is a way. 
In fact, humanity has been called from the very beginning by God into the wisdom of what you might call cultivation, leveraging resources toward abundance, toward harvest, toward increase. In the very beginning, Genesis chapter 1, you can read about it. God creates man in his own image. In the image of God, he creates him, male and female. He creates them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it and rule. This isn't a, these aren't verses and a call to power and dominance. It's often misconstrued that way. It implies stewardship and care. It's reiterated by God in Genesis chapter 2. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it, to cultivate. We are, as humans, accountable to God in the significantly meaningful work. We are stewards in his vineyard, representatives on this earth to manage and cultivate the world and all of life within it. Have you thought about that? You wonder what your work is. We all do. We wonder what it is, and if we found it, we want to do it well, but there is this broader context of working for the Lord for the good of the world, to be stewards of all that is within it, and he's given us that accountability, that charge, that responsibility. Your work within this world has eternal consequences. It's part of who you are. It's part of what it is to be human. You have been particularly placed. You have been specifically placed where you are, positioned, resourced, to cultivate that sphere of influence. Have you ever thought about that? Your work is just not something you do a few hours a day, can't wait till it gets over and leave it behind. It's not just a way to make money and secure your retirement. It's not just another way to find joy or happiness or fulfillment. It does, can do all those things and be those things. It is a, a greater thing than we normally imagine. And so we read about ourselves in the story of creation. God is saying to every human, you and me obviously included, trust me. Trust me. Don't, don't be wise in your own eyes. Come to me. Trust me. Keep me central. Don't get anything between you and my face. Keep me here. Cultivate the spaces that I call you and thrive. Trust me. Keep me central. Don't be distracted by all the shiny vanities of the world and cultivate Work into the resources. Take ownership, care, and steward what is within the space that I've put you and thrive. It's a beautiful call. And then the things get messy. We don't even make it past Genesis 3, where we see humanity failing to trust God, the, the very first thing, and the result is frustrated work. 
We're called into this beautiful work space, no matter what the work is, to trust God and to thrive and be a part of a thriving world. And then he says to Adam, because you listened to your wife, because you were wise in your own eyes and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat from all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of that field. By the sweat of your brow, by the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground. It's going to be frustrating and frustrated. In essence, this passage in Genesis 3 speaks to the brokenness that was introduced to the world through human disobedience, through a lack of trust. Jesus, God says first and foremost, you got to trust me. And if you don't do that, then everything else breaks down. And that's what we see. A breakdown in humanity's ability to trust God or follow through to trust God, lack of trust. And then we are stuck with it. And it affects not only our relationship with God, when we don't trust him, it affects our relationship with God. It affects our relationship with each other. And it affects our relationship with the earth and our work. Our work is a calling and a blessing, but will sometimes be frustrated and frustrating. At a whole bunch of places I was going to go with this from here about the different ways that our work is frustrated. But it struck me that we might need to camp right here for a second. And maybe for the rest of this week, you need to camp here. I don't know. Our work is a calling and a blessing. Where are you on the, the spectrum of my work sucks to my work is amazing? And by sucks, I mean hard and bad, not that word. I probably shouldn't have said that. My work, yuck. My work, yay. Where are you at on that spectrum? Doesn't really matter where you're at on that spectrum, true or not, the, 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 where you are on that. But it is a your work, listen, your work is a blessing. It's beautiful and it's good and it contributes to your betterment and the betterment of the world. No matter how it feels to you, no matter how you gauge it, evaluate it, value it, from God's perspective, your work matters. It's good. Maybe you need to take that very simple truth home with you and work it through. Most of us don't need a whole heck of a lot of time on this part. Your work will sometimes be frustrated and frustrating. Anybody have a job that's never been frustrated or frustrating? No, it cannot be. A, there's other people involved. C, entropy. Second law of thermodynamics. Everything's going from order to disorder. There's no way to work and not have it be frustrated or frustrating. We are all products of and in within the product of the fall. Maybe you just need to be reminded of that. We know it's true, but maybe what you need to remember, maybe what you need to think about is that when work is frustrated or frustrating, it doesn't mean that you're in the wrong work or that your work isn't succeeding. 
There is no work without frustration and frustrations. Maybe we need to just spend some time remembering God's context. And maybe you need to just spend some time this week remembering your work is a blessing. And there is no way to avoid the frustrations that come along with it. There's a growing trend of as soon as there is frustration, difficulty, uh, an escape mentality that says, well, I'm out. I'm not going to stay here and do this work, which in some cases may be the right move. But in most cases, it is not. If everyone could tell their great-grandfather why they quit their job, he probably would take a swing at you. Right? There was no, you didn't even have that choice. It didn't matter if the boss was insane or abusive or kind and, you know, caring. He's a boss. This is my work. Work in and of itself is good. Work in and of itself is good. Your work is good. No matter what it is, assuming, of course, it's ethical and moral. No matter what it is, just working is part of what godly living is. Just working is part of what it means to be human and to thrive. It doesn't have to be rewarding work. It doesn't have to be work that brings wonderful results. Just working brings glory to God, makes him smile, makes you a meaningful part of what he's doing in this world. It doesn't need to add up to anything. You can finish this life having worked hard and have nothing, and it is totally worth it. Anybody buying that? It's hard to buy because we are told the exact opposite. If there is no reward, if there is no large bank account, if there is no material wealth at the end of a life of work, it was a waste of time, not in God's economy, not even close. That you work is beautiful and meaningful. Work itself is good. It's actually not hard to find work. It's hard to find a particular kind of work. It's not hard to find work. You just got to call Ron Roman. There's work. And you should always work. Where you can even, or and you should always work where you, can, where you can do the hard work of even finding particular work. You should work when you're looking for work. You should always be at work. You should be at work in retirement. It's part of who we are. It's part of who we're meant to be. You are never going, there's never going to be a time in your Christian life where you are no longer called to work 
for the thriving, cultivating effects of it in your life. Neither grinding work nor rewarding work is better work. Janitorial work is, isn't less meaningful or less valuable than CEO work. Pay has nothing to do with the value of work. Results have nothing to do with the value of work. Neither paid work or unpaid work is better work. This is wisdom that is hard to understand. This is wisdom that goes against the wisdom of our own mind and the wisdom of our culture. This is the wisdom we have to seek to find and even harder to apply it. When the board talks of me taking a sabbatical, whether short or long, in the near future, in the distant future, I almost immediately begin to hyperventilate. It is, I have never done anything like that. And I can't imagine what it would be like to not be working. And one time when I verbalized that, Bob, chairman of our board, said, oh, we're not asking you not to work. This is a different kind of work. And I was like, well, yeah, but still. <laughs> I get it. It is hard for many of us to uh, feel valuable apart from our work. It is, it is hard for some of us to feel valuable with the kind of work we have or to see that it is valuable. This is a wisdom of God that is difficult to mine and even more difficult to put in place. It is, in fact, why God says to Sabbath, to take a Sunday, to take a Saturday, to take a day, to take, a, to take a week, to take a month, to take a long time to separate yourself from the work for a very specific purpose of remembering what work is not about and who we are apart from our work so that we are who we are intended to be in the work. Our work is a calling and a blessing, but will sometimes be frustrated and frustrating. Work within prison walls is not less honoring to God than the pioneering work of Silicon Valley. Our work is a calling and a blessing and sometimes frustrated and frustrating. Maybe we just need to camp right here. What's frustrating about work What's frustrating about work? I was trying to think. Results are hard to come by. Is anybody just getting all the results they want from their work? It's like, man, I can barely stop the results from coming. Does anybody have work that has plans associated with it? And is it ever difficult to execute those plans? Are there ever interruptions and setbacks to the plans? Yeah. Work involves unsatisfactory results, undesirable interruptions and setbacks. It's unavoidable. Our work is frustrated and frustrating. Does anybody have work and plans and goals in place and there aren't quite enough resources? Yeah. 
Anybody failed? Did many of you have, fail, have failure in your life at all, in your work? Yeah, it's part of it. It's just part of it. It doesn't mean it's not a blessing. It doesn't mean it's not meaningful. Your work is meaningful at the end of the day where you succeeded, and it's meaningful at the end of the day if you failed. You worked, and it's good, and it's beautiful. What's frustrated and frustrating about work? Sometimes the environment. I lived in San Antonio for 10 years, and in the summer in San Antonio, it is indescribably hot. You can't take your kids to the park because the sliding board is too hot. My oldest son's first words were, big air, daddy. In our truck, the AC thing had a little dot, a medium-sized dot, and a big dot. Big air, daddy. (laughs) Get that going. When he was just a little, little, little baby and I was night guy, I would get up and walk outside and walk. I remember this distinctly. I walked outside in San Antonio at 2 a.m. in the morning. It was 87 degrees. I was like, it's hot here, very hot here. All that to say, the environment for your job, I used to say, I saw this on a regular basis. In the summer in San Antonio, men working with tar and asphalt on a roof, I used to look up and think, I don't know how you can even do that. It's got to be 200 degrees up there all day long. Sometimes the environment of your job is not good. It may not be physical, but it might be, it might be uh, relationally difficult. Bosses might be difficult. Coworkers might make it frustrating or exhausting or even hurtful. None of that makes for bad work or that your work should be necessarily escaped. It's good and beautiful. Sometimes societal cultivation, the the thriving work that God wants you to do in your work has nothing more at times than keeping working. Sometimes it's just that. And even just keeping working is good working. What sorts of work are we talking about, right? We're talking a lot about vocational work. Could be relational work. Relational work is good and beautiful and frustrating. Could be family work. Could be marriage work. Could be child-rearing work. It's beautiful. It's good. Frustrated and frustrating. That's part of it. That's the point, right? You want to keep driving home. Not only is your work valuable, good, meaningful, expect it to be difficult. Grief work. History work. What the shaping experiences of your life, bad and good, sometimes require work. School work. It's all good. It's all beautiful. Irrespective of the pay, irrespective of the outcomes, it's good and hard. I'll leave you with this. Never, ever, 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 ever forget this. No matter what work you have, 
no matter how well or poorly it goes or how satisfying or dissatisfying it is, it has nothing to do with the work associated with your eternal security. Do not confuse your work with the work that is required to secure God's approval of you. Too many of us are doing the work of trying to get God's approval and some sense of peace and forgiveness in our soul from what we do, how we work in relationship and vocationally and in family. And that work is not our work. That work has been fully and completely done by Jesus. The only thing we need to do with regard to the work of forgiveness and eternal security is receive it by faith. Your work is good and it's beautiful and it's frustrating and it has nothing to do with your forgiveness and your divine approval and your eternal security. And we dip into some of the deepest recesses of the wisdom of the Bible to confirm it. This wisdom doesn't come from me to you. It comes from God to you, and it is affirmed by Jesus for you. Ephesians chapter 2, Paul speaking to a church in Ephesus about Jesus. He says, it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves, he says. It is the gift of God not by works, so that no one can boast. Don't be confused by the work that you have. Know that it is beautiful. Know that it is good. Know that it is meaningful. Know that it is frustrated and going to be frustrating. And know that it has nothing to do with the work that's already been done for you in order to have the approval of God. If you allow your work to be confused with that work, you will significantly, dramatically limit the sense and the presence of God in your life. It is not your work. The presence of God, the blessing of God, comes about in our lives almost exclusively because of the work of Jesus to put that relationship back together. And now we rest in it with full confidence, knowing unconditionally, apart from our work, that we have that relationship so maybe this week, the things to think about, the things to remember, the things to ponder are that your work is good. It's meaningful, and God's using it in your benefit, for your benefit and the world around you. It's always going to be frustrated and frustrating. And that the work that allows you a relationship with God has been done by Jesus. There's nothing you can do about that, but to live in it by faith. Maybe we just need to stick right there for a week and come back to this and see what happens next. Jesus, we're grateful for your presence. Uh, we're, we're grateful for your arrival and your physical presence. We're grateful for your continued presence by your spirit to teach us, to enlighten us uh, on the wisdom of the Father and the wisdom that has been what it's been and where it's been forever. We're so grateful for that. We're equally grateful for 
the work that you've done on our behalf so that we might live. And we're grateful. We are grateful. Your servant Paul told us time and again that we should be grateful in all things. And Lord, we are grateful for the work that we have before us right now. Whatever it is, we know that it's good and it's beautiful. And you want to strengthen us to get through it. You want to give us mercy in the midst of it because it's frustrating and frustrating and it sometimes takes us to our end.